Like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk. Welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like or do or think about or talk about. Just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to a true legend of the racetrack, John Force, a hot rod icon, and so many times champion, I can't remember how many times it was, who drives 300 miles per hour for a living, but who told me candidly, it was his reality show that almost gave him a heart attack. And with summer blockbuster season being hijacked by all the NBA free agency madness, we will debate which action movie had the worst basketball scene, Halle Berry's Catwoman, Kurt Russell's Escape from L.A., or Sigourney Weaver's, and maybe a little bit of Ron Perlman's Alien 4 Resurrection, all of which will play better basketball than the 2018 Chicago Bulls. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. Shots fired. I'm a Chicago native. (laughs) And on the phone this week, we have, and you know what? I should have said 2018 New York Knicks because on <laughs> or the phone, Brooklyn Nets, bro. <laughs> yeah, we, we have long, long-time Knicks fan, which actually we should talk about in wide open for a second. Long-time Knicks fan uh, and long-time Brooklyn resident, seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, okay, let's just get into it right now. We lived in southwestern Ohio, yet you were a Knicks fan in the 90s. Tell us, how did you fall in love with the Knickerbockers? So, uh, I loved it. it, There were changes. So like in the eighties, I will admit like every good white dude in the Midwest, I love the Celtics. I've said I had a Celtics jacket on here. (laughs) What? I will. Well, I'll say like I read Bob Ryan's drive, the Larry Bird story. And I loved it. I just loved the stories in there about the 85, 86 team. Uh, he retired, went through his year lying on the ground, uh, the whole nine. And I remember I was in set, we were in seventh grade and I was watching those Bulls Knicks series and everybody liked Michael Jordan. And I guess I was feeling like a little bit of a contrarian and I, it was the first time we were on a, like a tryout team and my game was basically like low post defense rebounding and 15 foot jump shots. And I took one look at Charles Oakley and I was like, that's my guy. And I fell in love with the Knicks from that moment on. I still, those nineties New York Knicks teams uh, were still so fun to watch and had so much attitude and swagger. Uh, I'll still stand by that. Although with age, I have had to admit that Michael Jordan is clearly the best player to ever play basketball. (laughs) Look, man, hey, in the spirit of you comparing your basketball game in middle school to Charles Oakley's, I would like to take right now to compare my dick size to Tommy Lee's, okay? Because, oh my God, Gareth. Dude, (laughs) Gareth, I love you. I'm not quite sure you made eighth grade basketball, but I'm damn sure you became the team manager and got on the team when another guy was proven by his birth certificate to be too old. Which now I believe you you might have been the first leaker of the Trump administration with that shit. <laughs> I think that's the second time that this has come up in the podcast <laughs> history. You get one more and we're done. My ball No. 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 Yeah. No, Gareth, no. Yeah, going Brad, from uh, team manager of the of the eighth grade basketball team to playing on the eighth grade basketball team is something that should be a sitcom on the CW. We should just talk about it on the air every week. Uh, yeah, that's not going to be our first spinoff pod there, bro. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right. I'll, I'll let it go. I will say you were, a re- you were a legit Knicks fan before. You know, you were a Knicks fan like during the, during the Bulls run. I remember fondly the OJ chase with you wearing a Knicks hat. One of those like where the Knicks is in cursive and New York is in like, you know, Calibri or Ariel like above yep. it. Oh, Classic blue with the back, yellow bro. lettering? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was that a happened. solid era for hats. 
I collected a lot of hats in that era. I had like a probably 200 hats. Well, the one thing, if we're going to get into this era of hats and Knicks, the one thing I would like to say, I think they got carried away with the Knicks logo just being written out or script. And it took a few years for them to resurrect the classic NYK basketball shape. And that is one of the coolest logos in sports to this day. So that was a missed opportunity for the early mid-90s. I'm glad they brought it back. Uh, the NYK is a classic for all times. All right. L- let's talk about this for a second. And before we do, I just want to shout out uh, Adam Willard, our uh, superstar sports PR rep who is at the ESPYs tonight, repping, repping his clients, repping the uh, the many athletes he's out there with. Uh, I, I did push out on our Facebook page him hanging with his old pal Aaron Rodgers and, and, and friend of show Sarah Spain. And Joe Reed, who is somewhere in the world and will be back with us soon. Ladies, I know, I know, he's coming back. You just need to stop emailing me about it. Uh, Gareth, let's talk about hats. So right now at the open of the show, we always turn it wide open. Anything around the sports world tangentially related that's not the scores of the games or the performance in the court is wide open. I want to talk hats for a second. I think logos in general should mm-hmm. be a snake eating its its tail. Meaning this. They I should all be t- like the Arizona Diamondbacks? <laughs> Which dime I mean purple and teal? Yes. Which I The snake you know, skin once, A. Once I wrote a letter to Sports Illustrated about my disdain for the purple and teal movement of the 90s in the uniforms. And my dad got so excited about it that he like sent it around to potential like employers. And I was like, dad, this is not my best work. Like, just stop. <laughs> RIP my dad. He, he was a, a great champion of me Kenberg. from afar. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think logos should always be evolving, but always be rediscovering their roots too. So I like what you said about, yes, for the 90s, the Knicks got into the scripts. But then they should re- rediscover their roots. But then in 20 years, they should rediscover the scripts. And I think the Bengals are a good example of that, where that's my like number one team. And I think the, the Bengals helmets are the tuxedo of NFL uh, jerseys. Like that's, the, that's what you wear when you want to go out and you, you know, do your best and look nice for the ladies. Why do you think that? Just why are the Bengals helmets the tuxedo? Okay, what part of the grizzly bear is uh, orange? Uh, okay. I can tell you what part of the Bengal is orange and black with stripes, and that's the whole fucking Bengal, bro. <laughs> right. We are we are sports cinema verite, okay? We are living, <laughs> living the being that we are trying to be. And if and if hey, Green Bay Packers want to step up and go verite, then bro, just throw on like some denim. <laughs> And go pack some tuna, all right? Or whatever they make. Or go pack right, some cheese. Right, No, no, dude. Put a roll of packing tape on their helmet, you <laughs> Yeah. Know? I mean, we're, that's why I get so angry with the Patriots. All those Patriots titles should have been the legit old-school Pat the Patriots snapping a football. <laughs> like, I could get on board with that. It'll never come back now. Yeah, not the Flying Elvis. Like, the Flying Elvis ruined that whole thing. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, I, I just feel like... Logos should always evolve to give the fans something new and each generation something to wrap their head around, but they should always be aesthetically consistent with the past and they should never like totally deviate from the, from their roots, which is why I hate when teams do huge color scheme changes or total overhauls, which are like, you've just defied the history of the, of the brand. So um, I've talked a lot on here about Around the NFL being a podcast I really like. Mark Sessler, in particular, on this podcast has talked about that. And one thing he's come out against in in NFL logos and uniforms is, guys, if you make a bad logo choice, don't stick with it for the requisite three or four years trying for it to take off. Just give it two years and rip the Band-Aid off. Like, Tampa Bay Bucks, we're looking in your direction. It's bad. It's a bad choice. Just admit it 
redesign the logo, redesign your uniforms, the font on the jersey, and move on, rather than trying to grind down the public in a war of attrition that you'll never win. All right, Gareth, I'm going to go wide open. Let's talk Chris Christie's sports talk radio career. He filled in on the fan on the heels of being, I don't know, maybe one of the most hated governors in history when he closed down a public park on 4th of July and then took his family out to a mansion on it and hung out on the beach. Hold on. As someone who lives here, this is local news here. His approval rating before making that decision was 15%. Okay. Yeah. Before. So this was like saying, "Hey, I'm gonna shit my pants," and now I, I I took my pants off and I shit in your lap. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, he did that. I mean, here's here's my thing though. Then he hosted sports talk on the fan. So Gareth, lots have been said about him as a sports talk host, his performance, all that stuff. I just have a question for both you and me. Okay. I didn't think there was another job that could bring his approval in America lower than just spouting hot takes about sports in New York, which is like toxifying to anybody who tries it, right? Name me one more job in America that would be worse for his approval ratings than what he just did. I disagree with you entirely. I think he will be great at it. He is a hyper-confident lawyer who loves arguing with people who, because he hasn't really been governing for the last two years, he knows everything going on in the New York sports scene. Yeah, He has the knowledge. Uh, okay, but that's not my point. My point is, like, that's a job where you are just hated. <laughs> I might disagree with that. I, I think that, like, we've come to kind of Look, Mike and Mike are loved. The only reason Francesa is hated is because he's so clearly... Look, he's been the Governor Christie of sports radio hosts. He literally falls asleep while hosting a show. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I, oh, what are you saying? What are you saying, Gary? Yeah. What? I, I don't know what you're saying, Gary. Uh, All right. So nobody's mailed it in more than him in the last few years. And in that way... Christie might be an actual improvement over Francesa, which is shocking. Actually, that line I just said does bring me back, Brad, to to one thing. Uh, one of the great sports media columns ever written was by Chuck Klosterman. It was when he wrote for Esquire. You and I talked about this years ago. He compared uh, current, at the time, NFL hosts or talent, on-air talent. Were they a better player or a better on-air talent do you i don't know if you remember this and he it was i do remember. it was the era of sean salisbury and sean salisbury was terrible and he was like sean salisbury is a terrible announcer but these were his stats when he played which means he might actually be a better announcer than he was quarterback which is the most shocking thing i have ever written and so with that in mind I think Governor Christie would be a step up over Mike Francesa, which is the most shocking thing I will ever say. All right, here's mine. I was going to say the dude at the vet that puts down your cat or your dog. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the only thing. The only thing that could make him worse. Let's move on. Enough about Chris Christie. I can't believe he's still around. Go away. Yeah, he's just exhausting. Wide open. What do you want to talk about? Before we move on from Christie... Remember when he was a shoe in to defeat Obama and become president in 2012? How'd that sort out? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. What, I don't know what you'd say other than just, uh, you know, like time just exposes frauds. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, Gareth, as we roll on and get exposed. What's on your mind? Okay, so I was reading... uh, This is going to sound embarrassing. It doesn't start embarrassing. I was reading Twitter, and then I clicked on a link to a BuzzFeed article. But this is an article that's not so much about... um, It's more about media than about sports. But this is particularly about... This is a shout-out to Brad Burke. So 
the U.S. Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, is he's kind of taken a low profile in this administration, unlike many people, and he doesn't give a lot of interviews. But one he did recently do was a 45-minute interview to the Mercer Island High School newspaper in his home state of Washington, and that was because one of the kids who works on the school paper, uh, Teddy, I believe, Teddy Fisher, saw his Mattis's cell phone listed on, you know, like in the interim period before Trump was inaugurated when they were having all those meetings and people were walking around with sheaves of paper and you could see people's cell phones. This kid saw a cell phone number for Mattis and called him. Nobody answered. He didn't leave a message. So he texted, hey, I'm from your home state. I'm working on a paper on international defense strategy uh, for my school or a piece for my school paper on international defense strategy. Would you talk to me? And one day this kid was sitting in class and Mattis just called him out of the blue. And he actually, he bought some time and he and his editor put together a list of questions and they did a 45 minute interview. As someone rightfully brought up, this is a cute story and all, but why does our own White House media get no access? That's fair. But more than that, I admire Teddy so much because he is clearly the Brad Burke of the Mercer Island High School paper. Because Brad, you are fearless in your pitching and asking onto this podcast. So Brad, with that story in mind, who is the most outlandish person that if you had their cell phone number, you would call or text out of the blue to invite them on this podcast? I've already talked about it on the show, and I'm not going to deviate from it. Guys, ladies, children, if we get a chance to interview O.J. Simpson, I will not ask him any questions about his football career mm-hmm. or the murders. <laughs> <laughs> I will legitimately just talk to him about something he did in prison that occupied his time. That's uh, the whole premise of our show is to exist in a world where athletes get to be something that they're not like beyond what they're known for. And I think OJ Simpson is the most ridiculous person to come on and just not bring up something that a has become a cultural phenomenon for multiple decades and B got ESPN an Oscar somehow. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bring it up. Uh, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you, does OJ? If OJ contacted the Oscars and said, "Do I get one? <laughs> Would he get one?" Uh, I doubt it because I think you have to be listed as having taken part in the filmmaking process. But let me ask yeah. you this: Did ESPN have to buy his life rights to make the film? Ooh. No, because he's a public figure, so he's he's probably beyond any... At this point, he's probably beyond any rational argument for his own story, legally, right? I would think so. He's fairly solidly in unauthorized territory, so... All right, wide open real quick. Um, Lonzo Ball, I just... Uh, Bill Simmons mentioned this on his podcast this week, and I totally agree. Don't wear your shoes on the basketball court. Like, it would be a tragedy if you're, both your ankles like blew out because you're wearing shoes made by your dad. <laughs> so go to Nike and you're... But here's the thing. I'm talking to you as a marketing professional. By pricing your shoes at $400 or whatever the hell they're selling them for... Your dad has positioned those shoes as a lifestyle brand and not a functional athletic brand. Right. High school kids are not going to spend that money to wear those shoes. They don't offer any efficacy or performance benefits for the price difference. It's okay from a branding perspective, and we know you want to be a cultural icon, I'm sure, to wear shoes that that, that enhance your performance and do not... Uh, uh, blow up your ankles and then to wear your shoes which are priced at a lifestyle premium point uh, to wear them after hours so if you want a consultation on how to make your shoe like be Mr. fucking Rogers like every interview in the in the in the locker room 
you do while you're lacing up the after hours balls. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's fine. Don't wear your shoes on the court. Don't be Grant Hill wearing Fila as Bill Simmons brought up. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yes, don't do that. That's my friendly advice. And if you need branding tips, dude, we're here. It's funny. I'm thinking about that. Like, what if, like, Vans signed a basketball player and they had to, like, go out and play in Vans? Or fucking, like, Birkenstock. Right, right. Like, I mean, look, I love myself some Birks. But I'm not sure that I would wear them on the court. Yeah. And that's probably what it's like to play in those Lonzo shoes. Blow out your ankles and shoes your dad made. Ooh. All right, Gareth, any more wide open? No, I'm good. That was, uh, that was solid. We got a really – it's a short interview. Uh, I ran into National Hot Rod Association legend John Forrest, and, and, and we, we got a chance to talk to him. He was on his way to Wrigley Field. He was throwing out the first pitch. It came together last minute. It's a short interview, about 10, 12 minutes. And we just talked about back when he had his own reality show on A&E, what that was like. Like, it was with his daughters, and they were entering the racing world. So we talked about the impact that his daughters have had on on racing and on, on athletics in general. So it's a quick interview, but, you know, anyone who knows John Forrest knows he's a, he's a personality. And he's and even at, uh, I think he said he's 68. He's still driving. He's still racing. He's still running that team. And he's still got it. He's got some energy. He's a good guy. So uh, tune in for that. And then afterwards, Gareth and I will come back with our distractions and also a special conversation about what can only be described as the worst basketball scenes ever involving aliens and cats. Stick around. Let me start there um, with the uh, the Cubs game. You're, you're throwing out the first pitch today at Wrigley Field. Um, you got a prediction for us? You going to throw a strike or, or what? Uh, I don't know. I, I ought to give the ball to Robert Height. He's one that's president of our company, but he's also a driver. But he's a real base, baseball buff. And I'll, I'll be lucky if I can reach the home plate. But it's an honor to do it for this team like Chicago and uh, and uh, coming off their championship. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's pretty exciting. And my grandkids will be there, so um, they're Chicago Cub fans. Uh, their dad's from Chicago, so we'll see where it goes. Yeah, well, hey, you got to throw off the mound, man. Don't let them make you throw. Don't let it, let them make you throw in front of the mound. You got to throw off the mound to, to make it official. <laughs> I got my tennis shoes on. Uh, I'm ready to go. And no, I'm excited. I played baseball as a kid, but you know, I'm no young. Uh, you know, I'm 68 years old. I can drive these funny cars. That's not a problem. Uh, but it, it's. Um, Throwing a baseball might be tough. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned family. You guys are the first family of drag racing. I'm just curious, as you look back on your career, how much pride do you take in how your family has come to uh, really kind of carry on your legacy, both with the running of your business and the uh, you know the performance on the track? Well, you know, we've lived this business since the early days when you when you had to match race to make a living and then run some of the national events. Uh, now with companies like overall industries, you know, peak and Robert with auto club, Brittany with monster energy and Courtney with advanced auto parts. And of course, Chevrolet, you couldn't do it now without these people. They give you that opportunity and, and to keep my children in it. Uh, we've got a marketing team and we chase it continually. We chase money continually because without the money, my children wouldn't get to play or my grandchildren in the future. My granddaughter, Autumn, she drives, uh, that's Robert Height's daughter, she she drives junior dragsters, and uh, only part-time, but you never know where it's going to take them in the future. If they love it, they may want to be in that sport. If they're going to be in the sport of NHRA drag racing, as a professional, you have to have sponsorship. You know, your your daughters have made quite the mark, um, you know, on the, on the circuit. Uh, you know, they've had some signature wins. How much do you feel like they have really expanded the view of women in drag racing and racing in general? Well, I think that it's necessary. When you look in the stands, the, the fathers, the wives, the children, men and women, it's split. And yet it's always been a male sport. Even back in the early days, there were only a few female drivers like Shirley Mill Downing. Um, and, and so the sport needs it. They need it in NASCAR, uh, in IndyCar, but they only have a few uh, uh, that are racing there. Drag racing has a, a huge mix, uh, whether it's pro stock, top fuel, and funny car, 
and in the grassroots uh, categories. Uh, you'll see it all in Chicago. We're racing there in Joliet this weekend at the NHRA Nationals. Unbelievable. The women are going to be side-by-side racing the men. You know, we got to know your family on your reality show, Driving Force, um, you know, a couple years ago. As we look back on that, I, I've read a quote where you talked about, you know, um, you know, the, it was the reality show that was going to give you the heart attack. <laughs> you know, even though here you are, um, you know, driving a driving a car 300 miles an hour. Um, as you look back on that show, what was it like to have your family sort of come of age in the industry together on the air? It, it was fun. It had its good size. Naturally, it made revenue to help fund the teams. Uh, but the problem was reality. It's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> they live with you seven days a week. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of these shows are, are filmed, uh, you know, in the household. And, and, and that's where it's at. Every now and then they journey out. We travel the country, run, you know, 24, 25 national events and, and match races. And, and, and it, it, it wore a little thin sometimes. A lot of people would ask, gee, is, is that all real? It was pretty much real. Yeah, me having fits and fighting with the kids, you know, because I was teaching them the business. Yeah. I loved doing it. It was probably the hardest on them because it gets into your personal life. And sometimes there's things you don't want to, you don't want to put out there and it gets it. And, uh, but that's what makes it reality. What was the craziest moment looking back on that show for you? Um, probably the hardest part, which was never aired. Uh, we, we chose not to, uh, my kids grew up with, we had two dogs and two cats and, and, and the lead dog, um, it was, it was, a. uh, it was a situation where the animal passed and he was just uh, a part of the family mm-hmm. and it was really crushing to them. And we filmed it because it was a, taking it to the vet. Tahoe was the name, taking him to the vet, going through the process and then losing him. They, they chose not to run that. It was really, it was a bleeder. And uh, some things are just too much. Even if you're being paid, you just don't want to put it out there. So uh, that was the animal growing up with the children. And, and, of course, they had the other ones. But uh, uh, Tall was was a favorite of the family. So uh, that was probably the hardest on my wife and myself and the kids. You, you mentioned the revenue. Was there a real business benefit for you? I mean, you guys are in a weird position in sports because as a team owner, um, you're constantly out there kind of searching for your own sponsors. It's a changing landscape in your sport in terms of the business models and, and, the, and the companies that, that enter it. Did you find that it was, a, it was an effective brand extension for you guys, or did you find oh, that it was just spreading you too thin to, to run the business? Oh, without a doubt. Well, we were spread too thin. In fact... Uh, you know, sponsors got double the exposure. We had right. primetime TV. We had we had uh, great, uh, you know, over a million viewers on an average. And if you can do over 500, they say you're doing good. We averaged a million, a million and a half. Um, uh, we did it for three years. Uh, my kids kind of grew up in it. They were coming out of, they were in, out of high school into college. And then it started happening. Uh, it, it, like I say, the sponsors loved the coverage. A lot of them even bought ads. Yeah, uh, through, through the network on A and E, but we built our own TV production company in house. That's what Ashley actually studied in school. Ashley, my third daughter, uh, drove funny car. I won Indy two years in a row, yep. and 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 so that TV show uh, was an opportunity because she understood Hollywood. She understood TV and how to produce. Right now, she runs our TV production company. We're shooting ten shows. Uh, we've already finished the first half of the season. That's going to be sent to taken into Netflix. So they're not 30 minute shows, but these are shows that are on the circuit and interviews back in the home and the shop and in the city. But they're not 30 minute shows; they're like 10 minute shows, and uh, and and that's a full press. Uh, we're going to do a documentary. Um, uh, they're finished in my book up. They've already got a script, a script writer doing the movie on our life, and it's not just me; it's everybody and where we come and where we're going. So. We, we got a lot of things, but in 07, Eric Medlin, a dr- young driver that drove for me, mm-hmm. was killed in a crash. And that's why we canceled the, the Driving Force show on A&E. We said, we need to go look at how to build race cars. And I opened up the, uh, Eric. His dad led that charge on it, John Medlin. 
and um, and we built safety, and we got out of the TV business. Now that we're we're back, and, and of course I crashed a few uh, months later, and they thought I was finished, and I came back and and uh, and still in the game. So um, yeah, give up TV, yeah, try to build better race cars. That's why we came. We never want to forget that. So we're doing so we're dipping in little stuff. Maybe a thirty thirty show or documentary. A lot of stuff we're gathering data. I've got a team doing that, small team, but um, working with actually. But they're documenting everything we're doing, and then uh, we'll see where it goes. Do you like being on camera? I mean, you're natural. You you you're someone who 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 talks a good game. I mean, are you comfortable on the camera, or was it a stretch to to just have it around you all the time? No, I grew I grew up telling stories and you know the bullshit and all that. Yeah. And 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 bottom line. No, TV was never hard for me. Uh, it, it came hard to some of them. It's hard sometimes, but after you do it a while, you just you just kind of live it and do it, and that's what it's all about. And uh, the coverage was great exposure for the sponsors, and and it, Bill or names can't walk through an airport. Everybody knows us. <laughs> well, hey, last thing: Are you ever going to stop driving? Or are you are you just in it till the end? Well, I signed a contract with Old World Industries with their brands with. Peak and Blue Death and all those. Uh, they gave me a contract, unheard of, uh, to drive as long as I want to drive. The problem is, you know, Father Time will get me. It's it's a it's a fight. Uh, I'm in the gym, uh, you know, trying to get to work out every other day uh, because of my injuries, you know, to keep my motion and everything. But I know that time will run out. But right now, I don't have a plan when to quit. Uh, I know I'm going to be in the seat. Uh, you know, I'm 58. At 70, I'll reevaluate this. But I'll be a team owner. I'll take John Force Racing to the next level and chase money and still do the deal. And I still want to be a test driver. But I got young kids, Robert Height and my daughters, and a young kid, Jimmy Proc, son, uh, Austin, uh, coming up that we're training. So, uh, you know, the future will be theirs. But right now, I'm in the battle. I'm going to fight <laughs> for a championship this year, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, you said you're, you're filming for, like, a like kind of a newer version, shorter version of the reality show, right? Like, where can fans see yeah. that? Well, we're trying to sell it. The guy that works for me, Brent Travers, uh, he produced my A&E show. And uh, him and Carlos, they want to get to, to uh, Netflix, and he's worked with them. So that's where they'll go with it, and we'll see where it goes. Hell, they might not want it. But I know that we put out good quality stuff, and I'm excited about it. I've seen some of the shows. I haven't seen all ten, but they're getting them wrapped up, and um, uh, that that's our next move. And of course, we've got a scriptwriter that's doing our TV show, right? Our movie is um, supposed to be done with it by the end of the year, and then you go to Hollywood and you try to sell it. And that's what my family and the people that I've hired that they do. Uh, so it's coming. Hey, well, we well we want it regardless of anybody else. So, John, we wish you nothing but the best of luck with the, with those projects and with the rest of the season. Thanks for giving us time today. I guarantee, you with the money I've spent producing this stuff, it's going to show. <laughs> if I have to, if I have to put it out there for free, but it will get done. That's great. So, That's great. Hey, throw a strike at Wrigley today. Yeah, we're going to throw him a fastball and see if we can get away with it without throwing it in the dirt. In San Francisco, <laughs> I threw it in the dirt at the Giants game. And uh, I cried so hard, so I'm going to back off a lot. <laughs> but we're going to biggest thing is to go win this NHRA race and uh, get these hot rods ready for the countdown for the championship. Well, that's great. Well, John, thanks again for the time. We wish you nothing but the best. The two dominant pop culture stories of this summer, if you check my Google history are summer movies and NBA insanity, which is great if you work for the ringer and terrible if you run Major League Baseball. So in the spirit of basketball and blockbusters, we're going to break down three of the worst action movies in history that have basketball scenes. Of course, I'm talking about Alien 4, Escape from L.A., and Gareth's favorite, Catwoman. <laughs> so, one of those is not terrible. <laughs> oh, ooh. That in itself is a hot take. All right, let's break it down. I want to How do you want to do this, Gareth? Do you want me to go we'll, want to go film by film and like we kind of like break them down individually and then talk about parallels? Do you want to talk like I'll like recap well, here, them let's, off the top? Let's just start this way. So, let's start with Catwoman, which uh, let's just get it out of the way. 
this is like I think that Catwoman brought up a lot of issues for me uh, because we've watched a lot of terrible movies in the purpose of this podcast and some of it's actually been fun and you see what doesn't work sometimes you get this sense of like my god look what gets made out there that scene from Catwoman is one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life and like I'm just I'm baffled how it got made how it got made so recently on like Halle Berry there's an Oscar winner in that scene and the scene that scene that is the scene of these three that I have the strongest opinions on so let's start there for that reason but also because it's the worst and let's get it out of the way what the hell was that, Brad? Yeah, I mean, dude, you say recently. I mean, that was made in 2004, which is shocking since it looks like uh, like rejected footage from MTV Sports from like 1993 with Dan Cortez. I mean, it is a... Yeah, if you told me that was like a Saturday morning cartoon outtake from 1989, I'd have been like, yeah, it sounds about right. Ben, yeah, you know, I mean, Benjamin it's, Bratz a, it's a completely <laughs> frenzied edit. It is insane. So I'm going to set it up for everybody. Halle Berry, who plays Catwoman, and Benjamin Bratt, who you you know best as the dude Julie Roberts was briefly dating during her Oscar speech, is it her love interest in this movie. And, Gareth, they're on a court, which I can only describe as the type of fake court that you would find in a Mountain Dew commercial that has basketball as the theme. Like, yes, graffiti, yes, perfect. graffiti everywhere, but, like, perfectly everywhere. Kids of all ethnicities playing in harmony. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, even before we get to the ridiculous scene of, of Catwoman playing basketball against Benjamin Bratt, it starts by the kid... Literally, they're, they're like talking and flirting. It's a meet cute, essentially, for these two characters. And the kid goes up and says, come on, you guys want to play one-on-one? Gareth, you and I have been on many pickup courts in our life. When you get on the court as a kid and you have the fucking ball in your hand, how much do you want to just hand the ball over to two adults to say, please, come plan the court while I watch you? Oh, or... I live two blocks from our local park, Carroll Park, Brooklyn, New York, represent. And every time I bring the kids, I have to walk through the basketball court to get to the playground. And I have been asked or called out to join a game or play one-on-one zero times <laughs> in the six years I've been a father. And we've already established zero. your game is like Charles Oakley personified. Like, you could be a huge <laughs> Amen. Bro, I'm big in New York. What can I say? (laughs) So these kids Uh, are like, do you want to play one-on-one? And then into the classic trope of Catwoman surprising Benjamin Bratt with her awesome ball handling skills. Gareth, I don't think she's quite Pistol Pete level. It's a lot of quick cuts and a lot of fake hands. Yeah, well, and then it gets into like her climbing walls and shit. Like It's stuff that would seem to have no application on a basketball court um it's the the way it's cut the way it's shot you then get you start to get down low with some like fisheye lens shots of the ball's eye view uh it's so bad and i can't imagine who that movie was made for i think you're the whole thing does read like a Mountain Dew commercial. Oh, yeah. I said I, in my notes I have – it's like a cat food flavored Mountain Dew that was coming out in the summer of 2004. They were like, let's make an awesome film and let's get Mick G, the director of Charlie's Angels, to direct it. So, Did he direct that no, movie? No, but I mean he he directed that movie but not this, this movie. I, I, I don't think so, but – oh, no. It's directed by Pitoff, who also has a ridiculous name. That's, that is ridiculous. Okay, you just mentioned the scene of her jumping the wall. So to make this seem yeah. as ridiculous, to, to explain it to our listeners, but make it seem as ridiculous, imagine a hockey rink, and Sidney Crosby is there with, uh, you know, uh, Ovechkin. And they say, let's play. And first of all, imagine that 100 kids are playing there, and they're like, hey, you guys come on the court, or on the ice and play. So those two go out there, and Ovechkin you know, shuttles the puck over to to Crosby, and Crosby kind of takes it and with the stick dribbles a bit, and then with his skates on, 
hustles up the side of the boards and the glass. Like so he's like horizontal <laughs> with the ice and then sets down, but then stops and doesn't score anything. It would just be like it's not wow, that was impressive. It was why did you do that? <laughs> why are you doing Right, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's just completely incongruous out of nowhere ridiculousness. Gareth, was she wearing high heels? I couldn't tell from the YouTube videos watching. I did not purchase this, listeners. I'm sorry. Your life, your entertainment is not worth $3 it would have cost me to rent this movie. Well, that is a good point uh, you bring up that these are all available to watch on YouTube. So that's the good news for these. After this scene, I think they are worth watching, by the way. So... No, this is um, worth watching in a hate watch mentality. I mean, first of all, like I said, is she wearing heels or no? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Look, I will say this. This is one that I watched once. Like, I didn't go back for, like, heavy note-taking. And my only note that I wrote down was shockingly bad. I mean, look, <laughs> like, they start playing one-on-one in front of these kids. And they're essentially just, like, gene jamming. Like, dry humping. They are just yeah, 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 like, yeah. oh, hey, we're flirting and playing. And if I was with kids, I'd be like, give me the ball back. At some point in this, she just finally decides, I'm going to win this game. And she jumps over him head on, probably in heels, and two-hand dunks on the rim. If I w- and, and Benjamin Bratt's character, his exact response is... Um, funny you don't seem fun deficient which is like a line they made a reference to earlier if a woman that i was playing basketball with two-handed dunked on me from the foul line in heels i'd be calling everyone like (laughs) we got something special like i want a juana man situation stat i'm not gonna sit here and just be like hey cool good move i'm gonna be like you're one of seven women to dunk in a competitive game and i want to exploit you for my own financial gain so that movie was really really bad and it was directed by this guy pitoff spelled p-i-t-o-f uh spoiler alert he's french but he was also the visual effects supervisor on 1997's Alien Resurrection. Whoa, that's the other one we're doing. Damn. How about that, huh? Gareth, you blew my mind. Mind equals blown. So that was the second movie uh, of this action movie trilogy. And Brad, I have to say, this this scene at least used sports and the sport of basketball for some sexual tension, some actual sexual tension, some violence, and also maybe inspired by his work. I think Catwoman, which came out in 2004, might have been inspired by this 1997 film where Sigourney Weaver can also apparently dunk. I don't know if gravitational forces have something let's to start, do with it. Let's start here. Because of the three movies we're going to talk about here, the two that have fake dunks are Catwoman and Alien 4. Why do fake dunks just not work on screen, Gareth? Because I think the average person actually knows how hard it is to dunk a ball and how there's no faking it. Like, the idea, I, whatever, most people watching a movie could probably think to themselves, I couldn't hit a home run. Then you kind of think, well, if I just closed my eyes and swung and hit a fastball the right way, maybe I could carry it 350 and I'll get a home run. I could hit a three-pointer. People know they can't dunk. It's 10 feet in the air. It's just, it's not happening. We understand the degree of difficulty to the maneuver. Yeah. It's also like, if everyone was diving off a diving board in a movie and pulling off like a triple twist, it's sort of like, huh, I don't know. It seems a little unrealistic to me. So it's also, it's, it's almost like visual cor- uh, shorthand for corny shot. You know, like the low angle, slow-mo, the ball lands on the camera, cut back to a wide shot of them walking off cockily. Yeah, I mean, I was dunked on once in a pickup game in college, and I'll never forget any instant of it. Like, if you said to me, like, which right. which side of the table were you on when your daughters were born? I'd be like, uh, maybe left. But if you're like, 
what happened during that dunk, it would like time would slow down and it would be like I'm in a Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> novel and I'm like, I'm going to narrate to you for 174 pages because I can remember every instant of it. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. A right. dunk is like a real thing. And you if it doesn't, if it's not real, you instantly know and you instantly hate it because you've seen the real and it just is. It's so bad. But which of the two fake dunks was worse, Sigourney Weaver or Halle Berry? Well, I would say Halle Berry just because everything about that scene was worth the the Sigourney Weaver one, like I said, just because of her performance and maybe her presence at least had some like edge and menace to it. So I can't be mad at that. They filmed the Sigourney one wrong. They should have done a wide shot with like an NBA player in a wig who would have gone up and dunked from wide and then turned around. And then the people approached her like that would have given the whole thing a different air. But they did a quick cut with her like kind of like Tom Chambers, like boosted over the rim way too high. Didn't work. Mm -hmm. If you if you slow-mo watch the Halle Berry one, which I did Natch, just not sports fans. Of course (laughs) I did. She doesn't really technically dunk. She goes up high over Benjamin Bratt, but she kind of like floats the ball to the backboard as she falls. So I got to give the edge to Sigourney because she at least made contact with the rim. Right. Okay, that's fair. The, but to your point, but how the, about the, the rest the scene of the scene? Of, the scene of Alien 4 is a character development scene for real. Like the, the Catwoman scene is about, oh, it's a meet cute. Like they, they kind of fall in love. Alien 4 is about, there's a lot that happens. They, they knock blood out of her face and it sizzles on the ground, which implies that she's half alien. If you know the series, um, it's about the sexual tension with with the the male parts of the crew that are sexually deprived who just want to uh, exploit her, and she's tougher than them. It's about the military people who are looking after her, uh, you know, and, and just saying like, "Oh, she's so amazing! Like we did it. We 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 made this hybrid." So there's actual advancement there, and that's that's clear because it was written by Joss Whedon, who who wrote that movie, but who later di- basically disavowed it because it, it was all just made terribly. And it, it, it's a really, mm. it's a pretty bad movie. I mean, it's not a good alien movie, but it's, you know, it, it, it's entertaining. I just want to know, Gareth, do you think basketball is going to be played in that current form in the year 2300 or whatever it is? Right. Is that the game we're carrying forth with us into the future? I mean, I, uh, I guess if you're in a spaceship, space. like it's a good it's a good game to play if there's gravity. If there's not gravity, like there's no point. But like, right, right, uh, it does make sense. I, I did not know that that she's an alien, and so that makes more sense that if she's part alien, she could dunk. Okay, wait, 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 um, wait, 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 stop, full stop, Gareth. Why did you think her blood sizzled? Uh, I just kind of blew through that. I didn't watch it in the cab or anything. <laughs> so if like you that, saw blood sizzling, like, you'd be like weird and just keep walking <laughs> like <laughs> well you're also watching this on a youtube clip i was impressed by the violence in the scene though and that well for, i was impressed by two things one that i noted was she's like actually working on fundamentals you know like she's in the three-point stance and like like shoot drive shoot like working her her handle and her ball moves which i found pretty funny um but then to your point about like me blowing past the blood sizzling, like that was there's some real knockdown drag out violence in the scene, which at least made it more interesting to watch than the Catwoman scene. Yeah, dude, I, I just want to say right here, right now, for all of our listeners, that triple that triple threat stance not fundamentally sound that Sigourney Weaver pulls. Hands way well, too she was high. Holding the ball too high. Elbow, elbows yeah. way too extended. Gareth Hughes, who prided himself after David Lipscomb basketball camp to hone his Charles Oakley esque skills, would have not appreciated the three point stance that Sigourney Weaver pulls. Well, I have to say this about my basketball game since clearly tonight's the episode we're getting into it. You can sum up my basketball game. In a in this one anecdote. So then in, in high school, I I made the team and I actually started to get okay. I felt like and I liked the game more, so I was practicing a lot. And so the summer before our sophomore year, we had like a basketball camp at our high school, and they went around and they watched everybody shooting. And so 
they wanted me, they were like, we want somebody to come out and show good form on how to take a shot. Okay, we choose this guy. And they point to me. I was like, oh shit, I'm the man. Show everyone what a good jump shot looks like. And I had perfect form as I bricked the shot. And that's pretty much my basketball career in a nutshell. <laughs> All right, let's talk about perfect form because we still have Escape from L.A. to get to. This movie... This scene was awesome. This scene was awesome. I've never seen this movie, but now I want to. Uh, I have thoughts about this particular scene. Escape from L.A. is the... Well, set it up first. It's the set se- it yeah, up it's first. A sequel that's to Escape from New York, which is essentially... New York and L.A. have become these prisons in the not-too-distant future where they basically just said the city got so bad, let's just siphon it off and make it a jail. We'll drop our prisoners there. In each scenario, there's there's a, a person that needs saving in the city, and they send in Snake Pilsen, a.k.a. Kurt Russell, uh, to to go save the person. And he runs into all these crazies. So here he's been captured by the, the heads of the rogue elements in L.A., in this prison, and they want to make him do what I can only describe Gareth as like a halftime, make the layup, make the free throw, make the three-pointer, make the half-court shot type of gamble. Is that how you would think about this scene? Well, no, it's it's more involved. That's what I liked about it. Uh, that basically what you have, you have to, you have to get to 10 points by scoring on either end of a court in under 10 seconds each time. I think it is, or I, I forget exactly what the setup was, but it was a, uh, it was an interesting challenge put forth by the bad guy. And as he put it, nobody gets off this court alive or no one's ever gotten off this court alive. So, Oh, by the way, we have breaking news on the just not sports podcast for the first time ever. Are you ready? What Lonzo ball has ditched his shoes for Nike's on the court in warmups at summer league. Wow. Already. I mean, I should say like about time. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you stepped yeah, onto the, sh- it, it's kind of like, Hey, I made my shoes out of what? Out of Sigourney Weaver's blood from alien four. Like it, it's burrowing through my feet, but you know, it's 400 bucks. So my dad told me to keep doing it anyway. Yeah. Back to escape from LA. I didn't like this scene, Gareth, for a couple reasons. Number one. You did or did not? I did not. Number one, okay. Rayanne from My So-Called Life is the love interest in this movie. I'm just not buying it. That's some inside baseball talk for my fellow 90s pop culture fans. Fine, I'm moving on. Two, Gareth, I'm not sure that by the rules of this rogue nation that he had to shoot at both baskets. Well, it's uh that huh? <laughs> yeah. Was there another scene in there where it was like explained that the, I thought that was the whole gag? Well, he said full court this, but he never said. He just said ten points when you re, when you reset when the when you hit a shot, the shot clock resets to ten seconds. I'm not sure he had to do. All ten. Now he he couldn't miss the shot. He had to go five for five. Um, but I thought he could have done it on one side of the court, and I guess I was wrong. But I that's what I would have at least tried. Well, Brad, I, I don't know if you're going to believe this, but I think there might have been some plot holes and script problems <laughs> with the end of Escape from LA. Here's another reason why I didn't like this scene. I watched a MTV like making of thing. Back in the 90s, which I actually remembered, which is sums up my whole life in ways only the people who know me can understand. And they tried yeah. to film that scene all in one take. And they came nowhere huh. near doing it because Kurt Russell, <laughs> Kurt Russell, although he was a accomplished minor league baseball player, right. sucks at basketball. And if you really watch it, I'm pretty sure he takes two-handed, two-footed jump shots. Yeah, well, I, I don't think... But that was the one part about that scene that I think served it well, that I don't think they were trying to hide his inabilities in basketball. You know, it was just sort of like, throw him out there and let him do it. Now, one take is pretty ambitious, so... 
I mean, I, how many times did you have to do that before you probably made it, you think? A layup, a free throw, a three-pointer. No, a layup, a jump shot, a three-pointer, a, a half-quarter, and a full quarter in a row. A thousand takes? Yeah. The full quarter was definitely – there's got to be some – there's got to be some well, he visual made, okay, effects so by our guy Pit off. I'll say this: I think he made, I think he made that full court shot. I don't think Sigourney Weaver made hers. Do you know that from the? I'm, now I'm buying in gullibly. Like, do you know that from the making of no, MTV scene? No, but if you look at Kurt Russell's, I'm not sure they could have faked that. So. His Brad, the ball goes Brad, out of frame. I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there. It might have gone in for real, but I don't think he made it because I think they could still be sitting there on that studio lot trying to get Kurt Russell to throw that ball in there. And that has nothing to do with him being a good or bad basketball player. Frankly, he's probably better at that because of throwing a baseball. But that is such a low percentage shot. You could shoot it forever and never make it. All right, real quick, to end this, to end this, to end this. Power rank the scenes worst to best. I mean, the worst. Let me just say. Let me rephrase. Catwoman to best. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Catwoman, uh, Alien. I actually liked the Escape from LA scene, even though Steve Buscemi is dressed in Jack Nicholson's Joker wardrobe leftovers. So that would be my number one pick. All right, I'm going. I would take Alien over uh, Escape from L.A. because two things. I think the chemistry of the actors is better in the Alien movie. I think it actually advances the, the story. And I think Kurt Russell playing basketball, the one thing you should not have done as a filmmaker was put it in slow-mo. <laughs> like, uh, There's a lot of slow-mo there where I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's running on his toes dribbling a basketball with his, with his palms. <laughs> like, stop it. Right, right. All right, Gareth, let's uh, let's just shoe our break here. Let's go right to distractions. What do you say? I love it. All right, I'll start. I'll start. Okay. On my flight home from L.A., I was out in L.A. doing some sports work. Uh, coming home, I threw on two things. I threw on Rogue One, which I had not seen. Very impressed. Yeah. I liked Rogue One a lot. I thought it was good. Uh, I walked out of Rogue One... It was four guys, and I said, uh, I think I might be done with the Star Wars universe. I don't know. Something about it, I just I, – I did not love it. So, Yeah, I was that's, – uh, that's me. Like, I, I thought it was good. I thought – why did you hate it? I don't know. There's just something about it. I was like, I might just be kind of done with this. Uh, there's nothing – I hated. I thought some of the pacing was off or something. I don't know. It just didn't – kind of work for me it was also look as a guy i watched it with a bunch of production dudes including a couple editors i was like so guys how'd you feel about an entire movie's climax hinging upon data transfer rates and hard drive transfers huh it really brought it home for your part of the industry guys so yeah that was my whatever i'm not trying to I'm not trying to anti-fanboy. If you liked it, that's cool. I'm not. I don't have a strong enough opinion to really care. I have a stronger opinion on episode seven, which I liked and will still rewatch, but I hate myself for it because it is a reboot. So that's what I can't believe you liked uh, Force Awakens better than Rogue One. I thought Rogue One was a far more original story. And honestly, I would say this. The dogfighting stuff in space was the best dogfighting action we've seen I think since the original Star Wars I think it's even better than Jedi uh, I agree with that That that'll I would buy with I'd buy that and you, so, especially when you look, compare especially when good. you compare it to um, when you compare it to the dumb dopey uh, you know prequel stuff like Anakin Skywalker flying around that 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 jet and stuff. I don't know, man. I thought Rogue One was fantastic. I thought that it made me laugh. Like I thought the robot made me laugh a lot. Like you probably quit before that. The robot, the robot was awesome. Yeah, like that's all you want is like cool robots, kick ass action, Darth Vader being a badass. Like what more do you want from a Star Wars movie? 
Well, that's the thing. I might just be over Star Wars movies, which is a different... Like, that, I think, might just happen with age. So... I mean, Gareth, you know. you're you're talking about maturing with age. You still compare your basketball game to Charles Oakley's. How come that didn't mature well, damn out? right, dude. <laughs> damn right. All right, well, just forget my other one. That was mine. <laughs> What's distracting Fuck that. You? What was it? What was it? All right, well, I finally watched that David Blaine special I talked about a few months ago. Uh, uh, and, dude, David Blaine's an insane person. And I still think stop trying to shoot yourself in the face, which I'm not impressed with. I mean, I'm impressed with, but not. I don't think it's inter- entertaining. It's just like, fine. I mean, I could pull my fingernails off and be impressed with it, but like, there's no point to it. And do more card tricks well, and cool stuff with celebrities like that. Freak them out. That's cool. Look, I mean, the key to a getting shot in the face stunt is to not get shot in the face. And he failed at that. And so that's tough. That's that's a tough one to pull off. I, I mean, look, I think that stuff's impressive. I don't think it's magic. <laughs> I just... I think right, right, when right. he convinced Margot Robbie that like he could tell her what she was thinking, like that's magic to me. I just don't think, hey, a dude shot me and I lived is is magic. It's just more, whoa, <laughs> like right, right, right. Ooh, okay, it's just it's <laughs> even even the episode said it's like he's an endurance artist at this point, like, and that's not yeah. as cool to me as when he freak someone out by picking a card i don't know just my take all right gareth you're up what's distracting you this week uh look it's repetitive it's funny like just for a little behind the scenes as we got started tonight uh, i said to brad i was like i have notes and i'm the one who frequently gets called out for not doing homework i was like i have notes on every segment but distractions um, which usually is the easiest one to do. But I guess, uh, what I want to talk about, I actually did do some homework on this, is uh, I, finally, er, I finally got around to watching the Grateful Dead doc, uh, Long Strange Trip on Amazon. I recommend it to anyone. I think it's interesting that it came out around the time of The Defiant Ones, uh, which, you know, they're two movies about, about each about four hours long about people that, found a way to exist in the music industry on their own terms. Uh, the movie's good, not great. Uh, I salute him for pulling it off. But there's a scene where Al Franken waxes rhapsodic about the song Althea, which I would argue is one of the best love songs ever written, a particular version of it. And I was talking to a friend about it. So I was on the Just Not Sports Spotify account, and I made a Grateful Dead playlist, which we will post for all of you. I think a lot of their music gets misclassified as hippy-dippy bullshit, when in fact it is very dark and death-obsessed, and I quite enjoy it. So that's what's been distracting me. Still not the greatest American rock band of all time, Gareth. It's not even close. They are. It's we're, We'll have this debate... Let's get Mr. Beaks or anyone who wants to do it. But to me, it's not, they're not even, they're so far ahead, it's not even funny. Well, I see you're grateful that I raised you a little band called Three Doors Down. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Nickelback, and I was hoping I would be able to say they're Canadian. Yeah, they're Canadian, so. bro. I would never, I would never support a Canadian band that's not Brian Adams. <laughs> All right. Touche. Well, that's our show for this week. Let's give some shout-outs. I want to give a shout-out to our co-host, Joe Reed, uh, wherever you are. Adam Millard, enjoying the ESPYs after party as we speak. We'll give a shout-out to John Force and his, uh, his, his, his great team that set us up with him. Uh, interesting guy, crazy career. I think he's fascinating for the talk we had about extending his brand into reality TV and what he learned from that and also – you know, he, he had three daughters, and they all became racers. And I, I think it's an underreported story about the impact they've had on uh, just overall women in sports. So uh, good for them, and uh, nothing uh, but best wishes for them heading into this uh, this season. So, uh, Gareth, anything else? Uh, yeah, shout-out to – no, I got, I got nothing. Well, <laughs> I got name, no shout Okay, outs. Gareth, name the first dead uh, artist that you can remember. <laughs> uh, uh, shout out Rothko fuck. shout out Caravaggio 
still think uh, <laughs> still think your your self portrait of yourself as uh, uh, as the as the beast who is beheaded probably saved your ass is from Caligula uh, or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shout out Jean Arp, your contributions to Dada and creating abstract art are underrecognized, bro. Keep it real. Amen. <laughs> All right, with that, we will say our final shout-outs to my boy Uzi. Def Jeff. Will Swanee. Meech. Ron Mack. My other cousin, Ron. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers. Stay booty. Stay booty.